these are the words of Jesus to us today. This is living. This is active. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would teach as we read. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, if, you, uh, if you've been coming a little bit, what we like to do typically as a church is, uh, is to spend some time um, through a book of the Bible or through a section of Scripture and, um, and so lately we've been going through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and this is the words of Jesus that we're going through. And if you've been coming, maybe you might be a little confused about the text because uh, last time we ended at uh, verse uh, 26 and now we're in 33. Don't worry, we're going to cover what we just skipped next week when Andrew's back. Um, and just a heads up uh, for you guys, it's going to be a sermon on lust and uh, sexuality and divorce. So if there are conversations, you have kids uh, that you typically have in the room and there's conversations you don't quite want to have yet, uh, then you might want to put them in kids church next week. Just a fair warning for you as well. Uh, But one of the things that I love about what we do and I hate about what we do is that when we go through books of the Bible um, and when we go through sections of scripture like the Sermon on the Mount, um, we come across things that are really beautiful and are really great, and we come across passages that are really hard, um, and that feel really weird, um, and that actually don't feel like they quite land in our culture, like they might have landed in the first century. And so we're going to tackle one of those texts kind of today, and I just want you to take a deep breath um, and and just track with me, okay? Uh, we're not going to spend an hour-long sermon on oath-taking, I promise you. Uh, I swear, okay? Um, we're not going to do that. Um, but we're not going to skip what Jesus has to teach us. Um, we're not going to skip what Jesus actually taught. We're going to look at it. We're going to learn from it. And I think Jesus actually has something really beneficial and valuable for us even today. Jesus wants to meet us today. So this might feel a little different. Um, this might feel very different from last week looking at anger. Um, but I think Jesus has something he wants to say to us today. So just stick it out with me and let's, let's do it together. So, um, so as a kid, uh, most of us had best friends, right? Even if they weren't really good friends. Uh, uh, all of us had like best friends as a kid growing up, probably that, uh, many times we had to swear them to secrecy, right? Um, so maybe it was some girl you liked or something embarrassing that you did, or you really wanted them to do something for you. And, uh, and so you made them swear to secrecy and regardless of what it was, you kind of had to know the different levels and systems of swearing, right? That we created as kids. So you kind of have like the basic, like I swear, I swear I won't do that. Uh, You have cross my heart, hope to die, right? Whatever that means. Um, I swear on my life. I swear on the Bible. 
Um, or maybe even if you're into country music, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. Um, and, uh, and those were kind of just, you know, they were simple, simple swears. Um, they weren't too bad as long as you didn't like cross your fingers because that just completely negated everything you swore. Um, but then you got to real serious ones that even like cross fingers were a bit questionable on, right? So like, I swear on my mama's grave, right? Or, uh, or uh, a pinky swear. Some of you guys, that's like ultimate, right? Um, or what is really what a lot of us see is kind of ultimate in that is I swear to God, right? That was like, don't even, my house was like, don't even say that. Don't even say that. Because uh, that's like too, too much, too much. Now as an adult, I don't typically go around swearing on my mama's grave all the time to try to convince you that what I'm saying is true. Um, but really, I mean, parenting kind of brings that a little bit. I mean, most often it's like, I swear if you touch that again, you will regret it. Um, and that's typically how it comes out. But again, as I've said, the last few weeks, we've been going through this series on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and it's beautiful. What Jesus is doing uh, here, this is the first teaching that we come across of Jesus in the New Testament. It's our introduction to his teaching. And what he's doing is he's painting for us the way of life and blessing. He's painting for us how the followers of Jesus are going to be shaped more and more like him. And as we've been talking, this isn't like, hey, here's the minimum requirements for being a Christian. Instead, we're saying is if you follow me, if you trust me, if you give your life to me, here are some ways that I'm going to shape you and change you. And when we get to verse 33 in the Sermon on the Mount, most of us just read over it and we just kind of go, that's a little weird, right? Uh, Because Jesus spends time in this all-important sermon to teach us about swearing. And not swearing as in using bad language. So some of y'all are off the hook, all right? (sighs) Dodge that bullet. Uh, But swearing as in taking oaths and making promises. And uh, I really doubt that any of you woke up this morning saying, I really need to hear a sermon about my oath-taking problems and issues. I'm going to go to a counselor. Uh, I'm going to get that all resolved and worked out. Um, of all the things that Jesus taught in this sermon, this feels the most foreign to us, right? I mean, this feels the strangest. Uh, I mean, how many of you all, just by a raise of hands, took an oath this past week? No one. Okay. Uh, that's what I expected. All right. Um, we should just all go home then, right? Um, but I think, again, I think Jesus has something he wants to say to us today. And that's that our words actually matter. Our words actually matter. So oaths. Oaths exist because untrustworthy people exist. Oaths exist because untrustworthy people exist. If everyone was believable, there would be no point for oaths. Oaths make our words more binding. And so an oath, what it is, kind of the idea is that an oath is calling on God or some sacred object to bear witness to something I'm saying, whether it's something that I'm saying is true um, or whether it's I'm going to follow through on a promise that I'm making. So something like this, I swear to the Lord, I did not steal your donkey, right? That's something that in the first century you may have heard. Um, And, or maybe something like, I swear by heaven that I will repay the debt that I owe. What you're saying is, hey, I'm swearing to God um, to bear witness to what I'm saying. And if what I say is false or I don't follow through, then I'm calling on whatever it is to punish me or to curse me. 
That was kind of the idea, right? So it's like, I swear, and if I am not telling the truth, God is going to curse me, or heaven is going to curse me. Um, in, uh, in our culture, oaths are around, uh, but they're a lot more rare. And typically, they take on more of a legal sense than a religious sense. We don't typically think of a deity cursing us uh, for an oath. But um, le- let me just kind of explain. In, in our country, it's not illegal to lie. I could lie to all of you right now if I wanted to. I mean, it's not illegal to lie. But if I swear an oath on, let's say, an affidavit or in the courtroom, what I'm saying is, is I'm inviting the government to punish me if they find me lying. Okay? It's the same kind of concept. I'm inviting something else to bear witness to what I'm saying. And if what I'm saying is found out to not be true, then I'm inviting cursing upon myself, punishment of some sort. And so to understand Jesus' teaching on oaths here, we really have to understand the first century, okay? Uh, Because the first century had a different relationship with oaths. Oaths were actually commonplace, and they were essential for society to function. Um, So, for instance, oaths were essential in an economic system where people uh, frequently were cheated or had people cut corners um, or were manipulated. And, um, And they didn't have, you know, Yelp reviews. They didn't have the Better Business Bureau for you to find out like what's a good uh, business. Um, anytime that you did any sort of transaction, whether you got someone to do a bid for a job, borrowed money, it was always risky. It was always risky because someone could just very easily back out with little recourse. So someone could have been price gouging and someone might've just been cheating you out. And merchants commonly did this. They cheated, they manipulated people to get greater profits. And so in the first century is very common for businessmen to have to take oaths to swear that they would actually do what they say they were going to do. And uh, it helped, but not very much, right? So, uh, so kind of uh, in Roman culture, there was this festival to the god uh, of merchants, this Roman god named Mercury. And, uh, and on his festival, all the merchants would gather and they'd make sacrifices and offerings. And they would ask Mercury for forgiveness for all the oaths that they broke and all the oaths that they were going to break in the future. And he would ask, they would ask for Mercury's help um, in helping to cheat other people to make greater profits. Uh, so, uh, so it didn't really help at all, but I guess it was kind of there a little bit. Um, but also oaths were significant in the political system that they had where people worshiped Caesar as God. So very commonly, people would make allegiances, uh, oaths of allegiance to the empire and the emperor, claiming Caesar is Lord. When you entered military service, you would take an oath. All of these things, just to say this, oaths were frequent and useful in keeping people to their word. So that's kind of the context. Now let's look at what Jesus has to say with that in mind. So Matthew 5, verse 33, let's read it again. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Let's just stop right there for a minute. So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, what he's doing here is he's actually summarizing the Old Testament teaching on swearing oaths. And it's pretty simple, right? Don't swear falsely. And if you swear to the Lord, you need to actually perform what you're going to do. This is in essence, what the third commandment was all about. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, If you're going to call on God's name uh, for some sort of oath or some sort of promise, you need to actually follow through 
on what you're going to say. But as we saw last week with, with the uh, commandment to murder and how that actually points to anger in our hearts, Jesus isn't just explaining the law to us here in this sermon, but he's actually pointing out the ways that the religious leaders of the day twisted its teaching. So the Pharisees, the scribes, they were really great at following the letter of the law, and they were really bad at following the spirit of the law. And so Jesus, he goes on. Verse 33 again. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Here's what he's saying. is for them, when it came to oaths, the religious leaders became like schoolboys on a playground. Right? They, had to, they created this elaborate system of all these different things you could swear by that had different levels of binding on them. So if you swore to the Lord, they said, you had to do that. You have to do that. Don't swear falsely. Swear to the Lord, you have to do that. But what about if you swore by heaven or by earth or by your own life? Well, there's a little bit more wiggle room to those kinds of swearing. And, uh, and, and so you might be able to actually back out of your oath. Um, and Jesus kind of more explicitly points this out later in Matthew So in Matthew 23, just listen to the foolishness and silliness of this. Matthew 23, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees again. He says, woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing... But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So when you took an oath, you had to know the system. And can you imagine doing business with these guys? Just imagine for a minute. It's like, hey, you didn't do what you swore you were going to do. And they're like, well, I only swore on the temple and not the gold that's in the temple. So I don't know what the big deal is, right? I mean, it's like, hey, my fingers are crossed. Sorry, you got played. Like, that's just, that's just what's kind of going on here. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he points out two big problems that I think still hold true today in the ways that the Jews approach these oaths. First, every oath is sworn to the Lord. Every oath is sworn to the Lord. So, here's the deal. Is they thought that they could get away with things by ma- making substitutes for swearing to the Lord. So, We'll swear by heaven. We'll swear by the temple. We'll, we'll swear by our own heads. And what Jesus is pointing out here and why he kind of goes through all these things is he's saying, actually, you know what? God made everything and God's over everything that you might even possibly swear by. So if you swear by that, you're actually also swearing by God. You're swearing by the Lord. If you swear by Jerusalem, well, that's where the king is. If you swear by the temple, that's where God's presence dwells. If you swear by the earth, that is God's footstool. All of this is pointing back to to this, is that substitutes don't get you out of what you've sworn. Uh, They just don't. If you swear um, 
on anything, you should take it with the same seriousness as if you swore to the Lord. And the second thing, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time, is, is this, is that the other problem was the heart of the law was to live a life of integrity. The heart of the law was to live a life of integrity. You see, Pharisees are good at keeping the letter of the law, bad at keeping the spirit of the law. And, uh, and they just had completely missed it. The Old Testament wasn't saying, hey, be really careful with which formula you use to swear. It wasn't saying, hey, be really crafty with your words. What the Old Testament commands were saying was live a life of integrity. Live a life of integrity and faithfulness and honesty. So Jesus, he says this, he kind of wraps up his teaching in verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So in other words, this whole system of O's that they had was actually coming from the evil one because it really was set up not for honesty's sake, but to give them wiggle room and, and to allow them to deceive others. I mean, even if you kept your oaths, what you basically were saying was, if I don't make an oath, my words are actually less binding and they don't matter as much. And Jesus is saying, if that's how you take it, you just probably shouldn't swear oaths at all, at all. So now here's the deal. Let's step back again. Let's step back. What does this have to do with us? We just talked for 15 minutes about swearing oaths, which some of you are probably excited about. Most of you probably bored out of your mind. So uh, let's just step back a minute and let's ask, what does this have to do with us? So here's the deal. We may not have an oath-taking problem in our culture, but we have an integrity problem in our culture. We do have a problem with truth, and that's the heart of what Jesus is getting to. Listen to Jesus again. Let what you say be simply yes or no. And James, he kind of summarizes it or rewords it this way. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here's the point. Followers of Jesus, those who claim that Jesus is Lord, the way that they live their lives is to be a life of integrity and faithfulness. So I want to tell you a story. Back in the, back in the 80s, um, there was this amazing Washington Post article um, that a lady named Janet Cook actually wrote. And she was investigating some of the just heroin addiction that was going on around Washington, D.C. And while doing that, she actually came across this uh, rumors of this boy, this eight-year-old boy who was a heroin addict. So she went, she interviewed him. She interviewed, he lived with his mom and his mom's boyfriend. And she kind of had this whole story of how his mom's boyfriend got him hooked in the first place when he was like five. Um, and how he would continue to do it. And just the tension that the mom felt um, in all of this, admitting that he's just an addict. This is just life. But also feeling the tension of what was going on with her son. And it was just so impactful to the city. I mean, the mayor ended up sending out the whole police force to track down this kid. They had, they had a hard time finding him, but eventually they announced, we found him, he's getting treatment. And a few days later, they said, he actually, he's died. He's died. Um, and the story was just such a big moment for the city um, and, and just what it did kind of in that cultural moment that actually it got nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and won. And a couple days after, after uh, Janet Cook had won the Pulitzer Prize, it came out that her whole story was fabricated. 
It was a complete lie. She had never met with anyone. She never talked with anyone. She had just heard of a rumor about maybe there being young kids. And she made up this whole story. And it even dragged the city government to where, because of public pressure, they lied to the public that they had found this kid and that he had died. And the kid didn't exist. The kid didn't exist at all. Here's why I say that. For some time now, our culture has been in a crisis of truth. We live in the age of fake news, right? Where people write stories that are completely fabricated in order to misinform and to mislead. And what the studies show and the research show is that actually we're pretty bad at recognizing facts from fiction, especially when it comes to those fake news stories. A recent study on fake news actually found that, I mean, listen to this, roughly 4 million tweets in any given month are actually linked to fake or conspiracy news publishers. And it's not just a problem with one side or the other. It's the political left and the political right that are doing this. Um, an MIT study actually found that, found that, quote, fake news and false rumors reach more people, penetrate deeper into the social network, and spread much faster than accurate stories. And one of the data scientists on this study, he concluded in his own words this, said, it seems pretty clear from our study that false information outperforms true information. And that is not just because of bots. It's not just Russian bots that are doing that. It might have something to do with human nature. See, but here's the deal. Our problem with truth and our culture is not just out there. It's not just our news and our politics and all that. But the problem is in here, in this room. The problem is in this room especially in the church, right? We don't keep the commitments that we make. We slander people. We put down people. We try to deceive others. We're in a little conversation and we try to pretend we know what's going on, even though we have no idea what's going on. It's look cool. At least I do that. We're experts at posturing, right? Putting out this image of ourselves that doesn't actually match reality. And if you want proof of that, we can just pull up your Instagram account, right? With your hashtag, no filter, AKA, I swear this is my real life, right? And in in some circumstances, we actually praise when people cheat the system for, uh, for their own advantage. So seven years, for seven years, I actually worked at a bank in the city. And whenever I had applied for the job, there was a requirement of, one year money handling experience. And I had zero money handling experience. And uh, I talked to my old boss about it because she knew I was going to be applying for this job. And she was like, you know what? You should just say that you have that because you were, you know, around the cash register sometimes and you saw people hand out money and, uh, and maybe you like help them out a little bit here and there, which I didn't. Um, and, uh, and she was like, just, and the heart of it was this, it was, it was, Hey, you would do a good job at this and you shouldn't let that silly qualification keep you from getting an interview. Like you should at least be able to get an interview on that. And that was kind of the rationale behind it. Um, and that's what I did. And needless to say, I got the job. I got an interview and I got the job and what I did it wasn't really seen as lacking integrity. It was just seen as being smart. 
of using the system, of, of really trying to get in there and get an interview. And in our culture, here's just reality. When we, when we kind of deceive on our taxes a little bit, it's actually seen as shrewd. When we close the sale by being less than truthful, we're celebrated for our salesmanship. When we embellish our resume by glossing over a few things, it's just seen as wise. And all that to say this, we know the truth, right? We know the truth. Yes does not always mean yes. No does not always mean no. That's the truth. That is the truth. Our integrity is, is frequently tested, especially in the workplace, right? Um, just like in Jesus's day, there's almost like this heightened tendency uh, to deceive in the workplace and in our vocations. And so there's this lady, Carol Kenzie Goman, and she actually wrote a book on lying in the workplace, okay? Uh, wrote a book about it. Um, and she wasn't the only one. Um, and, uh, and, and if you've ever worked in, uh, in any kind of workplace, you'll know this to be true. Here's kind of the summary of her findings and her research and spending life studying lying in the workplace. She says this, in the workplace, people fib, flatter, fabricate, prevaricate, equivocate, embellish, take liberties with, bend or stretch the truth. They boast, conceal, falsify, omit, spread gossip, misinform, or cover up embarrassing, perhaps even unethical acts. They lie in order to avoid accepting responsibility, to build status and power, to protect others from hearing a negative truth, to preserve a sense of autonomy, to keep their jobs, to get out of unwanted work, to get on the good side of the boss, to be perceived as team players when their main interest is self-interest. Or they lie because they're under pressure to perform and because, as one coworker observed about his teammates, they lack the guts to tell the boss that what is being asked isn't doable. So it's just a reality. In the workplace, there's all kinds of falsehoods and one-upmanships and everything else going on. And when Jesus, in this sermon, when he calls us to the simplicity of yes and no, he is calling us to integrity in our vocations and integrity in the workplace. Christians, followers of Jesus, are to do work differently. We do what we say we're going to do, what we've committed to do. We work the hours that we're committed to do and not wasting the day away on Facebook, right? We don't overpromise and underdeliver. That's not the way that Jesus wants us to carry ourselves. We don't hustle for the sale or to try to get greater profits. We're people of faithfulness working unto the Lord. And when you look at the first few hundred years of the church and the early church, um, they actually took seriously what Jesus taught here. Uh, being forbidden by Jesus to do most oaths in a culture that was driven by oaths, they had to guard their integrity in order to actually survive in the business world, right? Their yes had to be yes, and their no had to be no, or they would not have any sort of livelihood. They weren't hustlers, right? They even suffered profit sometimes and suffered business in order to walk in integrity 
so that the world could get a glimpse of Jesus. So Justin, who was, uh, he lived in the second century, he describes, um, describes the character of Christians at the time. And this is what he says. He says that many unbelievers in the day, quote, turned from the ways of violence and tyranny, overcome by observing the consistent lives of their neighbors or noting the strange patience of their injured acquaintances or, listen to this, experiencing the way they did business with them. So what he's saying is in the second century, because Christians took this seriously, many people came to faith in Jesus because of the way that Christians did business. Um, and uh, a guy who actually wrote a lot about the early church, Alan Kreider, um, he's kind of taking note on this. And here's kind of how he elaborates on the way they did business. Listen, perhaps patience meant that Christians would not press creditors for payment. Or perhaps it meant that Christians would be willing to speak the unadorned truth about a product they were selling. At times, it may have meant that Christians refused to retaliate when another business person treated them unethically. Patience meant that when a Christian businessman gave a quote on something he was selling, he quoted only one price and spoke plainly and honestly. Consolingly, Clement noted that if this meant that the Christian lost on a transaction, he would benefit spiritually. He will at least gain in truth and be richer by an upright disposition. So here's the deal. In this sermon, Jesus is shaping what life is in the kingdom and how his followers are going to live, how his followers are going to be shaped and formed. And the more and more that we're formed like Jesus and more and more formed by the ethics of his kingdom, we become this salty brightness in the world. We become this salty brightness, the salt and light of the world. When we see the way that the early church lived out this teaching of Jesus, they became attractive to the world. They became this salty brightness. And here is the command of Jesus to us. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus tells us that his followers are to be considered trustworthy, not because they make some elaborate oaths, not because they passionately assert that they're trustworthy, but because of their character. Because of their character and their integrity. Here, like, here's where Jesus is getting at. Christians actually don't have to swear oaths, except in maybe rare and solemn circumstances, because Christians live lives of faithfulness and truth. And don't miss what Jesus is saying. He, he isn't forbidding oaths, in order to give us freedom to lie, right? It's not like he's like, hey, that's actually too high of a standard. Like, don't do that. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying avoid oaths so you can deceive people. But rather he's saying that your yes and no mean a great deal. Much more than you actually typically give them credit for. In fact, here's kind of the implication here. That's kind of, thought about this and wrestled with this is I think what Jesus is getting at is our yes and no is as binding as if we swore an oath to the Lord. As if we swore to God. When we commit to something, when we talk about the truth of something, when we say yes and no, it's as if we added to it, I swear to God. And the way we talk about others 
in the way we describe situations that might seem a little embarrassing to us, things that we'd rather forget, there's no unfaithfulness found in us. That's the level of integrity that Jesus wants us to aim for. And if you belong to the Lord, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are bearing his name. And what you say is said in the name of the Lord. It's said in the name of the Lord. And in one sense, what that means is you are always under oath. Okay, just imagine for a moment being in a courtroom, right? You swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In that setting, what do you do? You don't use your words willy-nilly, right? You think deeply about what you're saying, right? You maybe had a lawyer coach you on what to say and what to leave unsaid. And in that setting, the goal is this, to create a place where your yes truly means yes and your no truly means no. And when you bring yourself under the lordship of Jesus, your entire life, every word that you utter is held to the standard of integrity and faithfulness and honesty because it is made under the name of the Lord. Now, th- don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean we can't make mistakes. doesn't mean we can't change our minds or forget about something or we're just going to be cursed. It's not what I'm saying. Um, and, uh, but I think here's the deal is we need to feel the weight of what Jesus is telling us. And we can easily gloss it over. We can excuse our words and our character. But I think at the end of the day, here's this. Is there's no space where Jesus sees our words as less binding. There's not a place where Jesus, or situations where Jesus gives us leeway for deception and unfaithfulness. Instead, we're called to walk in integrity at all times. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So to wrap it up, um, where do we go from here? I think there's two things I just want to say. One, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you're here, somehow you're here sitting and listening to a sermon notes. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I think the call for you is to actually come to the truth. And here's the deal is the truth is not just this idea, but the truth is a person. Is a person. And the truth came to rescue us. I mean, the reality is, is we have not lived our lives in integrity. None of us. We've not lived our lives in complete faithfulness. Our yes and no have not been yes and no. And in reality, every oath that we say comes with this curse. And there is a curse. There is a curse we have to deal with. We desperately need rescue. And the good news is that the truth himself came to rescue those who were false. Those who hid those who deceived. Jesus came, who is himself the truth. He came to earth and he lived a perfect life for us. He died bearing our curse, bearing our sins, bearing our brokenness to bring us back to God. And he rose again from the dead and he calls you and me to follow him and to trust him. And he did that because he made an oath. He made an oath. In the beginning, God made an oath to come and rescue us from our brokenness and from our sin. And Jesus follows through on that. And Jesus comes and he rescues us. And now, today, just as on this mountain, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us 
to hear his voice, to follow him, to trust him, to take on this true life of blessedness. And his grace will change us. His grace will form us. His grace will transform us more and more into him. But if you're not a follower of Jesus today, the call for you out of this is to trust him, to come to the truth that came to rescue you. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, here, here would be what I'd say, is Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Here's the deal. Our words matter deeply. And as such, we need to weigh our words. Uh, we should be a people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. We need to mean what we say and say what we mean. But here's the deal. Much of our falsehood actually comes from this desire for self-protection, right? A lot of our deceiving, our slander, our putting down, our misrepresenting comes from this desire of self-protection. That it's, it's scary to be vulnerable, right? It's scary to have the truth of who we are exposed for the world. It's scary to speak the truth to one another. It's scary to do that. But here's the deal, is that if we truly have embraced the freedom of the gospel in Jesus, if we truly embrace the gospel that says Jesus came and we don't have to do anything to earn his love, we don't have to try to pretend we're someone we're not, that Jesus loves us as we are and he's forgiven us of all of our sins, then now we have the freedom to actually be honest with one another. Now we have the freedom to be vulnerable and to say, you know what? Here's my brokenness. Here's the part of me that I've hidden for years and years and years. And now we can actually own who we are. And if we truly believe the gospel of Jesus, there's no reason to protect our image. There's just no reason. If we truly have embraced the freedom of the gospel, falsehood begins to fall away. It begins to fall away. And so, call for you followers of Jesus, put away falsehood by embracing the freedom of the gospel.